Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books in Law podcast. My name is Ian Drake, and for this week, we have an unusual interview. It's not about a book, but rather about a series of arguments uh, in regard to the presidency and what is becoming fast popularly known as the Emoluments Clause. Our guest is Seth Barrett Tillman. He's with the Department of Law at Maynooth University in Ireland. And Seth has been on the New Books and Law podcast before, uh, where we talked about the John Merriman case from the Civil War. But today we're going to talk about something much more, well, in some ways it's ancient history, uh, but it's also um, recent uh, and of very important uh, relevance in today's politics. So Seth, thank you for joining us on New Books and Law podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm actually more on my own ground here than I was when we talked about the Civil War. Okay, good. Well, uh, the issue that we're talking about is an issue (laughs) near and dear to the hearts of all New Books and Law podcast listeners, which, of course, is the U.S. Constitution and its applicability. The clause in particular, uh, sometimes referred to as the Title of Nobility Clause, along with the Emoluments Clause. In particular, we're concerned with Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8, and this is a clause that hasn't received too much press before President Trump. So could you explain the political context before we get to the legal context where this clause is arising? There are many clauses in the U.S. Constitution that are essentially unlitigated, that haven't played a big role in the legal system, at least in the formal legal system. Sometimes that's because those clauses are a success. The most famous example of that is the Religious Test Clause. The reason that clause really hasn't been litigated very much is it's worked exactly as it was supposed to work. We haven't seen very much litigation around the Foreign Emoluments Clause. There are just really three or four cases. And they don't have a lot to say about the scope of the clause, and they don't do much about interpreting the language. Uh, When President Trump was elected, one of the things people started talking about, including many of his opponents, was he owned lots of assets, particularly lots of assets abroad. And those assets risk creating conflicts. And the Foreign Emoluments Clause is a clause that deals with at least some conflicts. And they decided that if the president doesn't put, doesn't, first of all, doesn't sell his assets or alternatively put his assets into a blind trust, that they would create lawsuits and take and sue the president. And in fact, that's what they basically did. There are now three lawsuits against the president, one in the Southern District of New York that went to a final judgment that will be appealed any day now one in Maryland, and one in the District of Columbia, brought by differently situated plaintiffs, government plaintiffs and private plaintiffs. And they're basically suing the president because they believe he is not obeying this constitutional directive in the Foreign Emoluments Clause. We'll talk about that too. But let me just say the word emoluments is in several clauses of the Constitution. And one of the, excuse me, one of the odd things about this debate is that there's this... Uh, for lack of a better way to put it, there's a blind spot uh, in the heart of uh, what I would call American lawyerdom and American legal academia. That is, 
what American lawyers and American legal academics really understand is case law. That's the heart of what they're taught in law school and the heart of what they do when they write papers and, and when they litigate most cases. Many of these people who are really quite bright and quite able, once they're thrown into a clause that really hasn't been litigated, many of them are out of their depth. And that's what you saw with the first discussions at around the time Trump was elected, uh, elected excuse me, that many people that started talking about this clause weren't really very aware of the literature that there was on this clause. Not that the literature was very that deep. The truth is there are really only about four people um, in U.S. academia who've written on this clause. I'm one of them. Zephyr Teachout is another. Professor Enton is a third. And Professor Jensen is a fourth. There really isn't anyone else who's written extensively on the clause. And you might even say some of us haven't written extensively on the clause. And it's very hard to write extensively on a clause that hasn't generated lawsuits. So it might not surprise you that amongst the four of us and the few other of us who commented on this clause, there are real differences of opinion on what the scope of the clause is. Now, Zephyr Teachout has been writing on this clause since 2009. I've been writing on it since around 2007, 2008. Uh, I've been writing on it because there is language in the clause that is in other clauses, and I've been very interested in the scope of that language. And one of the oddities about this clause is it uses the phrase office of profit or trust under the United States. And I'll simplify that for the purpose of our conversation here today to office under the United States. And the, the question that I've been trying to analyze in, in my papers for the past several years, long before Trump was elected, is what does the Constitution mean by this office under the United States language? Now, there's, there's substantial debate about that. I can tell you, though, that the one lawsuit we've had on this clause so far, the one that's gone before the federal district court, the trial court in New York, the judge never got to that question because he threw the case out. He dismissed it on what are called threshold grounds, that is an absence of standing or genuine harm uh, alleged by the plaintiffs who brought the case. That will go on appeal. The Court of Appeals will have a second chance to look at it. But <clears throat> I, I suppose the first thing I want, want your listeners to understand is that until just a few months ago, no one called this clause the Emoluments Clause. And that's one of the oddities about this debate, that, that as many people who decided they wanted to be experts the day after Trump was elected started calling this clause the Emoluments Clause. Historically, the Emoluments Clause was another clause of the Constitution that used the word emoluments. Traditionally, the clause we're talking about here today was called the Foreign Gifts Clause or the Foreign Titles Clause or occasionally the Foreign Emoluments Clause. But for some reason, it got renamed just for the purpose of Trump. And to tell you the truth, I really feel sorry for future students who are going to see this discussion wrapped up around the discussion called the Emoluments Clause. And they really won't know what clause is being talked about because there are other clauses in the U.S. Constitution that use the word emoluments. So that's one thing I want your listeners to know. And a second thing I'd like your listeners to know is that there are really two different questions that one might consider here. There's, there's what you might call the big historical question. Uh, which I suppose would be of primary interest to many of the listeners here, this being the you know, Books and History Network, right? But there's also a separate question, which is related, not entirely different, which is the legal question. That is, what does this clause mean in our legal system as we make use of the, not only the original understanding of the Constitution, but the sort of what you might call the sediment of precedent that's accumulated around the Constitution all these years? Those are slightly different questions. Uh, now, in this case, we have what you might call an open field. We don't have a lot of precedent, and we certainly don't have any precedent, and this is really what's interesting, I think. We don't have any case that says this obscure language of office of profit or trust under the United States, which I'll, which I'll shorten to office under the United States, actually includes the president. 
uh, that's surprising. And I think many people think that odd. Uh, but there are lots of reasons to think it doesn't include the president. Now, I don't want you to think that this is an open and shut case. There are there are good reasons to go either way on this. There are there are fine academics who come out differently. Um, so I'll try to restate their position as best I can. Um, my position is that the original understanding of the Constitution was that office under the United States language, which is in the Foreign Emoluments Clause and several other clauses in the Constitution doesn't extend to any elected positions. It only refers to appointed positions. That's a little counterintuitive to today's sensibilities. Um, and it would certainly limit the scope of the clause. And it would certainly get President Trump off the hook. But sometimes that's the way the cookie uh, crumbles. The office of profit or trust is, I think, the, the key language in the clause that we're talking about from Article 1, right? I think so. Well, I, I, actually, let me change that. It's Office of Profit or Trust under the United States. I think you need the under the United States. Sure. In, in other words, it's got to be a federal office. Well, uh, I, I happen to agree with that, but not everyone agrees with that. Some people think of under the United States perhaps as, a, as extending to the geographic region of the United States, and therefore it might encompass state positions too. I don't agree with that myself. I happen to believe it only refers to a subset of federal positions, not all federal positions. Uh, part of the problem is here, and again, I, 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 I hope your listeners might, might not think I'm talking down to them, but a lot of people might miss this. There, there are two different questions we have to ask here. We, one question we, we should be interested in is, what did it mean to the people at the time who drafted this clause and ratified it? That is, what was the public conception at the time this clause went into force? That's a slightly different question with regard to how we should interpret it today, understanding that how it was understood at the time it was ratified should feed into that, but perhaps not be entirely controlling. That method methodological questions for the purpose of lawsuits is slightly different uh, because courts are bound by what you might call uh, the sediment of precedent, uh, the methodologies of legal interpretation. Uh, and to tell you the truth, to be quite blunt about it, just what judges think is good policy, which often governs interpretation. So in terms of the historical understanding, um, there may be two ways of approaching it. On the one hand, uh, both of which are sometimes lumped under the originalist approach, which is, on the one hand, what did it mean to the people who drafted the language? What did they think they were ratifying? With the focus more on ratifying. Not, not, not so much a draft. Drafting is some evidence, but ratifying tends to be the better evidence. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And then also, what did it mean in common parlance? What was it understood to mean broadly? Um, so what kind of evidence do we have historically in regard to the ratification process regarding this language, if any? Well, in terms of regarding this language, that is, discussion of the language itself, we really don't have anything where we, where we have people opining broadly on what this particular language means, which is really not extraordinary, but considering how frequently this language comes up in the Constitution, you'd certainly think there'd be some discussion. And I happen to think one reason there is a discussion was, and uh, was sort of what we might call genealogical uh, law, which is that there's a phrase in British law from the 18th century called office under the crown. And I think what happened at the end of the colonial period when the newly independent states were created is that the, the newly independent states took their old statutes, their old charters, which they turned to the constitutions, and they simply chopped off 
office under the crown and turned into office under the state. Then you'll see in the Articles of Confederation, the language office under the United States or office under any state, or sometimes they be together, office under the United States and any state. Uh, so I happen to think that office under the United States was a successor to an earlier British drafting convention. Now, in British law, uh, office under the crown couldn't extend to elected positions. It, that just makes no sense. Office on, offices under the crown are positions that are appointed by the crown and positions that can be supervised by the crown. Probably the closest thing we have it today are uh, inferior offices that the president uh, appoint. Uh, uh, but uh, again, it's very hard to prove that. I mean, that's sort of genealogical interpretation. It looks strong, uh, but so far, no court has approved that interpretation. Uh, uh, let me give you another example of um, um, what, what, what Justice Story said in his commentaries on the Constitution. He looked at the impeachment clause, and the impeachment clause says basically uh, the president, vice president, and officers of the United States. Not the exact same play, phrase in the Foreign Emoluments Clause. Here it's officer of the United States. So the impeachment clause says the president, vice president, and officers of the United States are subject to impeachment. And what Story said is, if the president were an officer of the United States, there'd be another. It should be the president, vice president, and other officers of the United States. And in his commentaries, what Story said is that the default rule in the Constitution is that when general language is meant to reach the president or the vice president, there'll be express language in addition to the general language. That is, general office under the United States language or officer of the United States without more doesn't reach the president. And that was just his interpretation in his book. And that was 30 years after ratification. Right. This, this comes um, out, in the, it, it comes out in the 1830s. That's right. And one of the really interesting things about this interpretation is Story's interpretation was published before Madison's notes, which came out in the 1840s. I think it was 1840 when it came out, actually. Madison's notes from the convention. And one of the interesting things we've learned from Madison's notes is that an early draft of the impeachment clause, and in fact did say president, vice president, or other officers of the United States. But before the Constitution was finalized, the Committee of Style pulled the word other out, and we don't really know why. Now, that might mean story is correct, but it's not definitive proof. There is uh, evidence on the other side, uh, including evidence from the Virginia Ratifying Convention. Um, two ratifiers, Edmund Randolph and George Mason, said in public debate uh, uh, that the Foreign Emoluments Clause applies to the president. They didn't explain why, and they didn't explain what the scope of the office under the United States language was, but they were of the view that it did apply. So there's, there's definitely interesting arguments both ways. Okay, so um, in, in terms of just kind of an aside, almost an aside, um, this is paired with uh, the nobility clause. So, um, that's right. The, no the titles of nobility clause comes right before the foreign emoluments clause. Right. And so, um, any sense that the pairing of, of these two clauses relates to elective offices or is that qualificate qualifying language office of profit or trust truly the distinction here? In other words, the mere fact of pairing, what would that matter? Um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm really, I really follow you. Could you try to put that question again? Okay, so um, if 
if the historical understanding of the uh, office of prophet or trust does not apply to elective offices, uh, but the nobility clause does. Is that, in other words, are we, do we assume that the nobility clause definitely applies to all offices? Well, let's take a look at that for a second. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States. All right, well, uh, a title of nobility doesn't have to be attached to a pre-existing office. It could, it, could be, it could be granted outright. You don't have to have an appointed office or an elected office to get a title of nobility. The Titles and Nobility Clause just says the United States can't give any such title. And I suppose the states can't do it either uh, under the Republican uh, – the Guarantee Clause, the, the Republican Form of Government Clause. So I, I, I take for granted states and the federal government can't give out Titles and Nobility. The Foreign Emoluments Clause follows, uh, follows that, the, the Titles and Nobility Clause. It's in the same provision in the Constitution, separated by a colon. And it says, no person holding any office of profit or trust under the United States – shall without the consent of Congress accept of any president, emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. So the scope of the foreign emoluments element goes to this odd language of office of profit or trust under the United States, or actually it says under them, because it links back to the United States and the titles of the building clause, which is in the, the prior phrase. It's interesting that if you look at the Articles of Confederation, there's a, there's a predecessor uh, to the foreign emoluments clause. And in the Articles of Confederation, it says uh, no person holding any office of profit or trust under the United States or any state. So in, in a certain sense, the, the Articles of Confederation's version of this provision applied to the national government such as it was under the Articles, the, the Articles of Congress. And, and it applied to the national government and to the states. But for some reason, the Foreign Emoluments Clause in the Federal Constitution didn't apply to states, or at least that, that seems to be the majority understanding today. It's certainly my understanding. But it, it's, it's not, we, don't, we certainly don't have a court decision telling us that. Uh, it's not like the Supreme Court ever opined upon it. Uh, so let, let me give you a, a, another example of why I'm persuaded, at least, that this language doesn't reach uh, elected positions. Uh, there's a number of uh, advisory memoranda generated by the, the, the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the federal government's legal advisor. Often they're writing legal advice for the president. And when they talk about this clause, they go over the history of presidential gift giving. One of the really interesting things about those histories that are laid out uh, in uh, government memoranda is all the gifts that are described by the Office of Legal Counsel start with President Jackson and go forward. There's no explanation why, as if no president prior to Jackson ever received a gift. So one of the things I started doing when I sort of opened up this area of research back in 2008 is I, I tried to find examples <coughs> excuse me, of diplomatic gifts given to our early presidents. It turned out Washington received <coughs> excuse me, a diplomatic gift from the French ambassador. Uh, it was a painting. Uh, in a very valuable frame. It was a full-length portrait of Louis XVI before the revolution, before he was beheaded. Uh, <coughs> he was given that painting and that frame portrait. It was a lithograph, actually. It wasn't painted. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. By the French ambassador. And he sent it to Mount Vernon. Uh, he never asked for congressional consent. And he never got congressional consent. Uh, he received a second such gift from the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, it wasn't a diplomatic gift, but the Marquis was a French government official. Thomas Jefferson received several diplomatic gifts. Uh, 
he didn't ask for congressional consent, and he sent those gifts uh, to his uh, – what was the name of Jefferson's famous estate? It's in Virginia also. Monticello, uh, uh, thank you. I'm sorry. I froze for a second. Monticello, thank you very much. He said in Monticello, you can still see the Jefferson gifts there. One is a bust of Tsar Alexander I, uh, which was given to him by the Russian government. It also appears that Madison and Monroe received uh, foreign uh, diplomatic gifts and never asked for Congress to keep those gifts. So there are two possibilities there. Uh, Madison, Monroe, Washington, and Jefferson didn't understand the Constitution or that they were crooks or that they did understand the Constitution and they just didn't think this clause applied to them. Now, that is a little counterintuitive, but I have to tell you, I mean, I don't want to ever have to go into court and tell a judge that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were crooks. I don't think that'd be a winning argument. Um, and I, I, I don't think that most people in the history book network probably feel that way either. I think, I think that the popular understanding is that even in the world of slaveholders in the 18th century, there was some sense of personal honor. I can't imagine Washington would have accepted gifts if he thought they were illegal. And after all, if he had asked for congressional consent, he won the Electoral College unanimously twice. He would have gotten it. It was just a painting. He never did ask and he never got congressional consent. And I think that's an argument that part of the popular understanding, and I'm not saying the unanimous understanding of this clause, but a part of the understanding of this clause in the early government was that the Foreign Emoluments Clause didn't apply to presidents and other elected officials. And this history, by the way, part of what you uh referred to in a New York Times op-ed that you um, pu- that was published back in July of 2017. You authored it with Josh Blackman. Um, it's called, Yes, Trump Can Accept Gifts. Um, so this history is uh, potentially informative in terms of practice, established practice, right? Um, and so a court could actually look to this history uh, to shore up it, uh, a conclusion that this at least doesn't reach the presidency um, or at least uh, whether or not it has to apply to all elective offices, the question would really be whether or not it reaches the presidency in regard to gifts. But then again, what about um, – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that uh, should a court decide that this clause doesn't reach the presidency, one route they might used to get there is to say it doesn't apply to any elected office and then the presidency would be an application of it. Another way they might do it is to look to the history of gift gifting and see that presidents didn't ask for consent uh, or one might be evidence of the other. I mean there, there are any number of ways a judge who has decided on a conclusion uh, can reach it. Now the definition of emolument. So question would be um, – in terms of uh, business dealings today with uh, President Trump's, sure. Go ahead. Uh, b- before I turn to that, I just want to talk about one other, I think, interesting piece of evidence about Office of Profit or Trust, and then maybe take them out. There was a uh, when Alexander Hamilton was Secretary of the Treasury, he was uh, he created a great many memos. Uh, many of those memos are in our public records today, uh, in collections of our public records. Uh, you know, the famous, the famous record, uh, one of the famous reports uh, Hamilton created was, you know, the, the note of manufacturing or the report of manufacturers. And of course, we're familiar with other debates that he had with Jefferson when they were both in the cabinet giving Washington advice. When I started researching this area, 
I was looking for any use I could find of this office under the United States language. It was in early American records. And I came across a document that was in the papers of Alexander Hamilton, where Hamilton had been asked by the Senate of the United States to furnish the Senate with a list of all those who hold office under the United States and their emoluments. Um, so it took Hamilton nine months to create that list. And when he sent the report to the Senate, the first position he mentions was the Secretary of State. The president and vice president and members of Congress aren't on that list. Now, perhaps one could find other reasons to believe he left those positions out, but it seems to me the default position ought to be that if he was asked to provide a list of all those holding office under the United States, and he didn't provide a list of the elected positions with their salaries, their compensation, their emoluments, then Alexander Hamilton, circa 1793, just a few years after ratification, it might be said, didn't believe that the president and other elected positions held office under the United States. Unfortunately, the history of this particular document was complicated by the fact that it was subsequently reproduced in the 1830s in American state papers. And this has led to some confusion because the people who generated American state papers were not above rewriting original documents from, uh, uh, from U.S. history. That is, the people who edited American state papers would get original documents and they would take it upon themselves to clarify them for the public. And in the, pu public, the, in the published version of this document in American state papers from the 1830s, some editor added the president and vice president. But in the original generated by Hamilton, including what was republished in the papers of Alexander Hamilton, the president and the vice president. Hoped to be okay. Famous. So that, that was from 1793. That's the earliest evidence we have of an actual consideration of what it means to be an office uh, under the United States. That's really the operative language from the congressional request to Hamilton. Uh, it, it's certainly the earliest cabinet document. We have, we have gifts George Washington, which predated 1793. And we, we have lots of uh, provisions under state law that talk about office under the state, which is an analog. As a matter of fact, office under the United States was drawn from the early state constitutions and state statutes that use the phrase office under the state, just as office under the state, in my view, came from analogs from the pre-independence period of office under the crown. Uh, so I mean, part of the problem here is is we don't have a lot to hang our hat on. We don't. We have a lot of little bits of evidence, uh, and the, the counter view that office under the United States does include the president. Perhaps its strongest argument is the intuitive argument. That is, it's basically like this: if this is an anti-conflicts position, don't you want the president included? Right. I mean, why would you want to include the secretary of the Senate? I'm sorry, not the secretary, the secretary of state and other appointed positions, but not the president. And there are a number of ways to address that. Uh, but the danger of a question like that is you're engaged in a sort of presentism because it assumes that our moral intuitions and our legal intuitions are in line with what they were 200 years ago and maybe 225 years ago. They thought about these conflicts slightly differently. We really don't know for sure. Right. Of course, there is the language yeah. that requires the president to be native-born. Yes. So there is this consideration regarding for, foreign loyalties. Or... Oh, absolutely. This, this, this clause is, is, is definitely 
the part of the motive motive of this clause is conflicts and conflicts that come about uh, generated by foreign governments. No doubt about that. The question is, is there any bound or limit or any definable scope to the clause? Let me put it to you this way. Uh, this is the analogy I like to use. Uh, uh, there's a clause in the Constitution, the famous clause, the ex post facto clause. And uh, the first famous litigation of the ex post facto clause was Calder versus Bull, an obscure Connecticut case. And uh, one of the things virtually all the judges who sat on that decision, because they had ad seriatim opinions, each ju justice who wrote on it had his, his own short opinion, basically said the, the motive or purpose of this clause is to limit retrospectivity to limit making law after the fact. But even though that's the motive or purpose, it doesn't apply to all retrospective uh, lawmaking. It only applies to retrospective lawmaking in the criminal context. Now, there's nothing in the Constitution that says ex post facto means the criminal context. Uh, the justices had a reason for arriving at that conclusion, and I, I'll leave it to you to you know tease out yourself someday whether you think they were justified in that. There's always been a minority view in American academia that just may be uh, the ex post facto clause is broader than criminal liability. But back in 17, what was the year of Calder versus Bull? Uh, I, think I think you're right, 1796. Uh, the, the justices uniformly agreed that the retrospectivity, although it was the focus or motive or purpose of the clause, was not unbounded. Now, the language there is ex post facto. It's technical language. All right, And the Supreme Court said, Sometimes when we look at technical language, it has a technical meaning and not a popular meaning. We look to the understanding of the bar. We look to the understanding of uh, 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 the practices of judges and courts. I would suggest that office of profit or trust is technical language. It's not exactly everyday language. What's an office of profit? How is it distinguished from an office of trust? Why profit or trust? And how does an office of profit or trust differ from the disqualification clause, which is another clause in the Constitution, that talks about office of honor, profit, or trust, assuming there is any such language. So I would agree that the motivation, the purpose, the, the concern of this clause are foreign entanglements, foreign divided, divided loyalties created by foreign influence. But the fact that that might have been the motive or purpose doesn't mean the clause is wholly unbounded and would apply to any federal position. Uh, I think the Hamilton evidence and the evidence of early presidential practice is some strong counter evidence that this office of profit or trust language, like the British equivalent of office under the crown, really only extended to appointed offices, which are subject to supervision uh, by elected officials. Now, one of the other issues that comes up is the emoluments definition, the definition of emoluments. Um, this is uh, something you address in a longer piece that was published in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. We're going to put a link up to that uh, and to your New York Times piece. Um, but let's talk about emoluments and what that means historically as well. Well, uh, it, it, it's an interesting word, uh, emolument. Uh, it's a word that has um, – sort of a, a general understanding. It, it, it's actually a word that, that comes out of the medieval period. Uh, uh, emoluments were sort of the fees that attached to uh, a quasi-public position. In the Middle Ages, for example, uh, in Britain, uh, before the unified, not the Middle Ages, uh, before the Middle Ages, 
uh, in the period b before there was a unified monarchy of any force, where there were powerful barons or landed lords, it wasn't uncommon for them to give out monopolies, particularly uh, milling monopolies. And they would simply declare the, the, the local noble lord what were the fees they could charge for milling grain. So the position of Miller was sort of a quasi-public position, and the emoluments would be set by some sort of regulation or order for the local nobleman. What happened when the unified monarchy came is all these milling fees would be set by statute, by parliament. An emolument was, in, at least in its narrow technical definition, were the benefits or compensation that flowed from a position, a public position, uh, fees, uh, uh, salary, or other compensation that was tied to some sort of personal service. Now, that's the technical legal definition. There's another definition of emolument that's sort of poetic or wider. Uh, you might speak of the emoluments of marriage, the benefits that flow from marriage, or you might speak to the emoluments of citizenship, the, the fact that you might get access to the courts, the courts of a country if you're a citizen of the country. Uh, so emolument has sort of this narrow technical definition of the, the fees and other compensation that flow from positions of personal service, and it has sort of this wider definition, uh, almost poetic, uh, that it refers to gains or benefits uh, that flow from a wider sets of relations. And one of the things that we've seen here is there is now some debate about whether the word emolument in the Foreign Emoluments Clause is talking about the personal service definition or it's talking about what you might call the wider definition, any benefit or gain. Uh, neither of these positions are perfect. Uh, both of them create some puzzles or difficulties or conundrums. Uh, and you'll certainly find some evidence on both sides. Sure, yeah. So at this point, um, we have these these pending lawsuits in the federal courts, um, which may or may not actually eventually reach the um, question of the clause and its meaning. But... Um, Let's assume uh, for purposes of speculative argument that uh, the court someday would reach this. Um, this would – it seems to me that your argument is that this in some ways would be a case of first impression. Case of first impression? Yeah, no, I, I think it is a case of first impression, particularly for the lower courts. The, the lower courts are, are looking at these lawsuits and they're, to tell you the truth, extremely troubled by them. Uh, most trial court judges are uh, most trial court judges in the federal system are former trial attorneys. Often they're former prosecutors. Sometimes they're defense attorneys for the criminal bar. Sometimes they're general practitioners, and they they see the core part of their role as judges is to guide the introduction of evidence in jury trials, uh, particularly uh, criminal juries. Uh, and uh, precedent is helpful. Here, what the trial courts are being asked to do isn't really part of their bread and butter. They're asked to interpret without any real guidance from the higher courts, the appellate courts or the Supreme Court, a bunch of language that nobody's ever really looked at before, at least in the legal system. A few academics have looked at it, uh, but not much more than that. You have to go back to Joseph Story to find a Supreme Court justice who talked about it. Just, Joseph Story really talked about it in his book. Not at any point. So I think it's not surprising that in a situation like this, what the trial courts want to do is they want to put these cases in a position 
So when they go up on appeal, they can get guidance from the appellate courts, the intermediate courts of appeal, the circuit courts, and the Supreme Court. So if the cases come back to them, they will have sufficient guidance to interpret this clause. But most trial court judges in the federal system, I don't think, like interpreting clauses that nobody's ever looked at before. Now, there, historically, there have been a few trial court judges who love questions like this. You know, uh, uh, Judge Pollock, who was a, a district judge in Pennsylvania, uh, could have easily thought himself doing historical scholarship of the sort that you'll see at the circuit courts and at the Supreme Court all the time. But he was exceptional. Uh, most trial court judges are much more happy to bounce these cases, I think, on standing, which is an area of law they know very well. And probably they're going to take the attitude that if they bounce these cases on standing, if they've made an error, then the upper court, the appellate court or the Supreme Court, will correct that error and send it back to them with substantial guidance so they can get it right the second time. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean they will be corrected. If they bounce it on standing and the appellate courts agree with them, no court will ever reach what these clauses mean. And what is the remedy that the plaintiffs are seeking? The remedy that the plaintiffs want? They're, they're looking for two things. They're looking for a declaration, that is, a, uh, an announcement by the court that the president is violating the Foreign Emoluments Clause and a sister called the Presidential Compensation Clause, which recently plaintiffs have started calling the Presidential Emoluments Clause. Uh, and they're looking for an equitable order. That is, they're looking for the court to order the president to stop violating the clause prospectively should the court determine that the president has violated the clause. Um, that's a lot uh, because uh, it would mean that the courts would be supervising detailed transactions of the president involving his private commercial dealings. I can see many pragmatic reasons why courts wouldn't want to get into that until they have some clear direction in appellate law, which they don't have. Because it would involve a significant, extensive degree of monitoring and continued court procedures. Now, that, that's, that's what they're asking for on paper as a formal matter, if you read their complaint. What they're really looking forward for, the plaintiffs, if you ask me, is the earlier step in the litigation, which is to get discovery against the president. That is, I happen to think, and I'm not making this up, some of the litigators in this matter on the plaintiff's side have announced this to the public. They've said it as much. They don't really care whether they win these suits at the end of the day. What they're really looking forward is to just get past the first initial hurdles to get discovery. They get discovery and get the, presidential's, the president's documents those documents could be used for political purposes, whether they win the suits at the end of the day or not. And, uh, of course, they want the president's tax returns, which the president, for whatever reason, has been unwilling to give out. But if they don't, if they don't get past the standing threshold, they can't get discovered. And you are – it should be noted, of course, that you're not merely an observer in this regard. You're a participant. Uh, you filed an amicus brief um, in all – In all three suits. Right. That's in exactly all right. I filed a, a friend of the court brief. Uh, the, I, I am not an alternate litigator for the president. I, I'm not standing in for the Department of Justice. My briefs basically restate my longstanding scholarship on this point that existed well before President Trump was on the political scene. I've been publishing on this clause for a good number of years, and my briefs reflect right. that scholarship. And we'll try to put links up. But you are right. I have a certain sense right. of Right, and we'll try to put links up to uh, 
those briefs as well as others um, that that uh, go against this argument. So, all right. Well, I think this is a, an extremely interesting topic uh, for all of our listeners. Um, and of course, at this point, we just don't know how things are going to turn out. Um, at this stage, what, uh, if you are aware, it, what is the next step or ostensible step in the uh, New York litigation? So the plaintiffs, well, there are three cases. Uh, there's the case in New York, which the federal trial court judge, Judge Daniels, has already dismissed on standing grounds. Plaintiffs promised to appeal that decision. I think they have another two weeks to take their appeal, and I expect they will take their appeal. And that appeal will go to the Second Circuit that covers New York. Okay, and we're, we're uh, doing this interview well, we'll on January 8th, just to note the time frame. Right, right. Um, you know, how sympathetic the Second Circuit Court of Appeals will be, I really don't know, to tell you the truth. Uh, so, so many of the arguments in this case are novel that I don't want to, I don't really want to handicap or predict what the Court of Appeals would do. Uh, then there's a second case in Washington, D.C., and that case is being brought by members of Congress, members of the House, and members of the Senate. Uh, I happen to think that of the three cases, that's the weakest of the three. I, I you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to handicap, I'm not going to predict, but it seems to me if any case has standing problems, that's the case that has standing problems. Uh, the, the federal courts have not been sympathetic to members of the minority in Congress suing the government to get relief relief that should otherwise flow from Congress. Historically, the courts have been very unsympathetic. There have been some examples where the courts would look at it, uh, very far and few between. Uh, that case has been briefed, and we're waiting for a decision uh, from Judge Sullivan in Washington, D.C. The third case is a case called District of Columbia and Maryland. It's being brought by the two attorneys generals of those states, uh, the district and of the state of Maryland, uh, versus Trump. That is being heard in the Maryland District Court. Uh, that case has been fully briefed, and oral argument is scheduled, I think, for January 26th. Uh, one of the interesting things about the oral arguments in these cases is that they've been unusually extensive. Uh, most oral arguments in the federal trial courts, uh, I don't mean jury trials, but I just mean arguments on papers, arguments on briefs, on emotions, are usually a half hour, an hour maybe two. Uh, Judge Daniels had half a day, maybe five or six hours of argument. And Judge Bissett, who's the judge in Maryland, has asked for a whole day's argument, which I, I've never even heard of from a federal trial court judge, to tell you the truth. And I've clerked for several federal trial court judges. Uh, <coughs> so they're definitely taking a very active interest in these cases. Uh, the Maryland case, if it goes on appeal, would go to appeal to what's called the Fourth Circuit, and the D.C. case would go on appeal to the D.C. Circuit. And should there be any conflict between the three circuit decisions, and I, because I expect that all three circuit courts will ultimately decide, that would be a very good argument for the Supreme Court to rectify any division among the circuits. But my guess is if all three circuits come out the same way, that's a pretty good argument for the Supreme Court not to take a look at it. It'll probably be another year maybe a year and a half before all this gets cleaned up, just in time for the next presidential election. Well, the, um, the factual record um, in these cases, are, are all three cases based on the same alleged gifts, presents, emoluments, what have you? 
or are they different? Well, no one's really alleging titles or gifts. The, the argument is uh, that the president's business transactions amount to emoluments or are emoluments. Uh, and obviously, for the plaintiff's position, office under the United States extends to elected positions such as the president. Uh, so if you think the word emoluments only attaches to compensation from personal services tied to a position like a civil service post or an elected position or an appointed position, uh, then Trump doesn't have any problem at all because he's just doing business by contract. If you take the wider definition of emoluments, which is any benefit or any gain, then contractual benefits could also be interpreted as emoluments. Of course, that creates, that creates real puzzles. Uh, but we could talk about one of those puzzles in a minute. I also want to mention that several of these suits, I think two of them, also bring claims under what's called the Presidential Compensation Clause, which talks about how the president cannot get any additional compensation beyond his compensation set by Congress from the federal government or from the states. So the question becomes what in that clause, which also uses the language of emoluments, that is the president can't receive any extra emoluments from the states or from the federal government other than what's set by Congress in his you know, salary. What is the scope of the word emoluments? Now, if you believe that emoluments extends to any benefit, if you really believe that, then that makes it sound like the president can't litigate a case in state court if he needs to sue someone or be sued. It makes it sound like the president can't ask for a driver's license or any of the other benefits under law that anybody else gets in the legal system. That might be a good argument that the more narrow definition, what I would call the traditional legalistic meaning of emoluments applies. But we don't have any firm guidance from the courts on this yet. Uh, it's an open question. And you know, as I, I try to point out, should the courts reject all these cases on standing grounds, the courts might never speak to these questions at all. It's, 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 it's kind of an unusual way to govern a country. One of the things I've discovered by living in Ireland and traveling in Europe is that most Europeans, or I should say most, a good many Europeans, look at it as sort of an act of madness that so much important policy in the United States is being driven by interpreting documents so old you really don't know what they mean. Which is kind of, kind of a challenge. Uh, but... It, it might also be a reflection that our Constitution has been a success too, uh, whereas the free-floating modern constitutions of Europe are fairly new in part because their legal systems haven't always worked. Of course, many many of those legal systems failed for reasons that had nothing to do with how desirable they were they were as constitutions. And perhaps our constitution, our legal system, or our polity succeeded in spite of its constitution rather than because of it. Uh, but it is odd that after a hard-fought election. We should think that the way to determine the president's fate is to litigate this fairly obscure clause, a clause that in modern times only really four academics have written on and no court has ever opined extensively on. It's a, it's a fairly odd way to govern a country, which is something we all might think about. Well, my guest today has been Seth Barrett Tillman, and he has written extensively on the emoluments clause and its potential application to the Trump presidency. We'll post links up to uh, some of the writings that he's published uh, and uh, on our website so that you can uh, peruse them for yourself. And Seth, uh, thanks again for your time 
and um, wish you the best in uh, your future arguments before the court. And, and um, we'll all be paying attention to see how it turns out. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.